What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. We're coming up on the summer solstice and on Juneteenth tomorrow, the celebration of the emancipation of slavery. Summer is meant to be a carefree time, but the issues below the surface are not. These complexities mirror the double-edged dilemmas that today's guest, Barbara Lynn Probst, examines in her book, The Sound Between the Notes. There are marital troubles, relationship questions, identity issues with finding biological family, a mysterious medical crisis, the potential for a soaring music career that threatens domestic commitments, and dichotomies abound. Here to talk about them is Barbara Lynn Probst. Welcome, Barbara. Oh, thank you so much, Diane. I'm really excited to be here today. And Just listening to your intro makes me realize how much really there is in the book. You know, when you get close to it, sometimes you just, uh, it, it's interesting to, to hear someone else summarize it so beautifully. Well, thank you. I mean, I enjoyed it, and it's interesting to telescope back. There are these double-edged swords. There, Nothing is as it seems. We meet Susanna and her beautiful family, Aaron, her husband, and her, and her son, and they are are picture perfect. They're living on the Hudson River. Um, she is an accomplished pianist. And I know that you are, um, and you call yourself an amateur pianist. And I wondered, um, what is the interface for you between the creative arts and your storytelling? Your first book, Queen of the Owls, was an investigation into a Georgia O'Keeffe painting And I noticed that in um, the silence between the notes, there was a Georgia O'Keeffe cityscape. And I just wondered (laughs) how you, we spotted that. But I mean, how is it that you pick these creative arts, um, you know, visual painting or performance in piano playing as metaphors to get your stories across? Well, there's about five wonderful questions in there, and I also have to say thank you for spotting that little secret message I left, um, mm-hmm. the little breadcrumb of the O'Keeffe painting. Um, the, yeah, I, I do feel that I have this, I've developed this interest in using art as a frame for storytelling, um, because there's so much in art that can move us, transform us, um, and, and teach us. So with, with Queen of the Owls, I, I'm not an artist, and I didn't know very much at all about O'Keeffe until I started researching her for the story. And the more I learned about her, the more the story took shape. Now, for the sound between the notes, it's a bit different. And first of all, the secret here is that I wrote this book first, huh. but it wasn't, it wasn't right. I was going to publish it first, and I pulled it because I, I knew 
that there was something, well, people had also told me, but I, I knew there was something wasn't right, and I didn't know what it was. I set it aside, and I wrote a whole other book, which was Queen of the Owls. So while, you know, once you have um, turned your manuscript in, there's a long period before it finally appears in the bookstore as an object called a book. So during that time, I had kind of um, ramped up my my piano study, and I went to a um, summer intensive for adult pianists, and I had this epiphany that my teachers there were so generous, so full of joy and love and wanting nothing but to help us become better musicians. And it suddenly, I can still remember walking down the street and realizing that I had made Susanna way too angry and bitter and resentful. And you can't be like that and play Chopin and Brahms the way she played them. So I suddenly saw what was wrong with the book, and I went and I did one more revision. So I, I like to say that I did not have to become a better writer. I had to become a better musician in order to make this book what it needed to be. So there was a very direct relationship. And then during the course of um, the insanity of book launches and stuff, I found it very restorative to go to the piano because it's a place that's not based on language, on words. Mm -hmm. It calls for a different kind of listening, serving the music, being there with your mind and your heart and your body. And it was just, really very um, essential for my well-being. So I put all that, of course, into, into Susanna as well. And while I'm not nearly as good as, as she is, um, there's no way I could have written that book if I hadn't played. And here's one more little, little special uh, fact, is that you know from reading it, Diane, that it's framed around a particular um, Schubert Sonata, which was when was written when he knew he was dying at age 33, I think. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible sonata. Now, it's too hard for me, but I vowed, and I did. I learned the second movement, which is the slower, more contemplative movement. It's just, technically, it's, it's the least difficult of, the, of them all, although in terms of expression, it's very difficult. Anyway, I felt I really couldn't, didn't have the right to publish this book until I had learned part of the sonata. So I did that. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's interesting. I mean, I think there's an authenticity there. And many people don't realize the gestation period with books that they don't magically appear overnight. And even though these realms, uh, the realm of concert piano playing, the realm of painting at the level of George O'Keefe, that's kind of like not not my reality. It's not my daily life. But the cool thing about sound, the sound between the notes is that you can read the book and get the same kind of resonance, get the same kind of sensation of, yeah, almost um, transporting yourself, healing yourself in a way, um, coming out of COVID, this, this idea that, you know, wow, how do we process all of this? I mean, there are times in the book where it's so rhapsodic, the description that, um, first of all, I knew you must be playing it somehow. Um, and secondly, that, you know, we get to feel all that uh, vibration. It's really, um, 
I think it really is a great act of yeah expressiveness. And, um, you know, just so listeners know, Barbara Lynn Probst um, has a PhD in clinical psychology, a clinical social work, right, Barbara? You are more, yes. um, you had a day job, you had a career um, prior to the, the development of yourself as an author. And um, I, I wondered if this balance that Susanna, you know, is tipping this precarious balance. She she wants to revive this concert piano career and she gets the opportunity to do it miraculously after raising her son for, I think he's 16. Um, he's just getting his learner's permit. And um, so she decides, she goes back to the keyboard because she's invited to be a, a concert soloist with this, um, with, with the Schubert um, concerto. And you then, you know, take her almost to the precipice of A, almost losing her mind, and B, threatening the well-being of her household because she forgets kind of crucial elements. The cat gets let out. Um, he's gone, he doesn't come back, and, you know, oh my God, like the basic things, she doesn't make it to the basketball game of her son, and there's like a lot of stuff that starts to fray and fall apart at the edges. I wondered if that too was a phenomenon that you became familiar with through your writing career, which is very demanding and time-absorptive. How did it affect the balance in your domestic life? Well, again, you, you ask such wonderfully rich questions. So I would start first to the first part of what you were saying, that I do want to make the point that it's so true that a book like this, it teaches, lets us into a world that we may not know. For example, the world of a musician. You don't have to be a musician to read the book. We like books that show us something that's not part of our ordinary lives. At the same time, there's something universal. The conflicts she feels between wanting to do right by those she loves and wanting to do right by herself, to fulfill herself. Mm -hmm. The conflicted loyalties, the the, um, competing roles, all of that is something that is, is all of us can relate to. So there is this kind of wonderful thing about writing where you capture the universal or the general within the specific. So it, the story embedded in the world of a musician, and that definitely is something that interests me very much. And I do think that women in particular struggle with this question of, of balancing their, not just obligation, but their wish, their feeling for the different parts of our lives. And sometimes we go uh, farther in one direction than we realize, and there's a cost. There's always... Uh, you know, and, and you can never go back all the way either. Mm-hmm. You, it's another thing like this idea of of um, of healing a broken family um, or healing a broken finger. You you have to find a new a new way to go forward. So all of that, as you say, the psychology. Um, I do feel very fortunate that my training. I was a therapist. Um, I was a researcher. I think has given me a lot of, um, uh, I want to say compassion and, and of, of how profound it is just to be a human being, 
how people really do struggle with these two forces of caring for other and caring for self. Um, That has a lot of meaning for me, absolutely. I think that you brought to the table um, such a lot of insight because of your experience and you're going into other people's shoes through your work and really tapping into, right, that everyday vibe of, you know, how does this affect this balance of roles? You talk about the cost. Um, There's always a cost. There's always a consequence. We think we can have it all. We think we can juggle all these responsibilities. Something's got to give. Something does give. And I think the fact that you talk, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that Susanna had to become less angry. In some ways, she took responsibility for her deferred piano career. Um, she was studying with Vera, the, the, you know, the archangel, the kind of, you know, mother figure to Susanna, um, and who, who had a variety of mothers because she was adopted. Um, and I don't say that lightly and as an adoptee, I understand that. But I, I just want to make the point that, you know, Susanna was a woman who decided, I want to be there for Jacob, my son. I want to be there for him as a kind of mother that I didn't really have. And when you look at a newborn and you invariably make those promises that are deep in your plasma, I will always be there for you. It's something transcendent. And she didn't get deferred from her career because somebody made her do that. She did it because she made a very deep, 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 deep commitment. And I thought you captured that beautifully. I wondered um, when you developed this character, uh, and so therefore she couldn't be really angry at anybody. That, that, that I think, you know, that was, I think, why she's so believable. You know, we make mm. these choices and we live with them. And um, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. just, as an author, you, you did just an exquisite job. I do wonder about Susanna, though. Um, she has a double life, right? She she starts to create a double life when she wants to go back out into the world. She, she can't figure out how to finance it because she's going to have to rent a piano. She's going to have to get a gown. She's going to be on the stage. Lots of things are not quite fitting into the old paradigm, let's say. And I wondered about the concept of a double life. It's of course so intriguing and fascinating. And also in queen of the owls, there was, she had a double life. Um, what about this is fascinating to you? What interests you about this? And do you think we all have this? Huh, that's an interesting way to put it. I mean, I think in, in, in the sound between the notes, she was hiding things from her husband because she didn't um, really quite want him to know what she was up to unless she was going to bring home a great big, you know, success. And, um, so definitely something hidden, and her search for her birth family also had the uh, quality of trying to uncover what was hidden. Um, now that you mention it, in, in Queen of the Owls, again, this idea of being hidden and exposed, being revealed, the, the trauma or the, the, the crisis in that book was when she, uh, the nude photos she had posed for that she thought we're going to be kept private, we're made public. So mm-hmm. again, do I, and she had to choose to be, at that point, there's a critical moment in the book when 
she realizes that she doesn't have to take them down. She can choose to reveal herself. And so I didn't think of it as double, but, but in, what I see that in both books, there is this decision to be seen or to be heard, to be known rather than to hide. And again, in, in the sound between the notes, there's also her... Uh, ultimate embrace of the, the biological sister, and when she says there's room for both kinds of music in the world, it's not a matter of either or. So I can I can be part of both families. Mm-hmm. I can accept that um, that I have two heritages, which is something that is very close to me as a, as an adoptive mother. I. Um, in, in one of my children, it was really much less open, but in the, in the other child, I had to embrace the reality and the role and the importance of um, this other uh, factor, this other uh, legacy that my child had received. Mm-hmm. So there is something about, about uh, opening to more. Yes. That, that I think is really um, strong, very profound for me personally, that, that we, the parts that we've ignored, the parts we've denied, um, the, um, I mean, it, this would be simplistic, but I will say that in Queen of the Owls, Elizabeth wants to be seen in the sound between the notes, Susanna wants to be heard. She talks about how you can't just play for yourself. You have to play for others. You have to be heard. And then the sound gets bigger and returns to you from the, mm-hmm. the, the, the energy of the listener. So um, these are the kinds of things that get me excited. <laughs> totally. And I think for a lot of women, you, you talk about overcoming like in a kind of an erasure, you know, where we erase ourselves we are not heard um, because we don't speak or we haven't figured out how to speak, what to say, what to do when that happens. Um, we're not practiced at it. Um, you know, fortunately, Susanna is practiced and accomplished. But I love the idea of what you're talking about, just opening up. Like, how do you open up? And how do you open up at a point in your life before it's too late? Um, mm-hmm. You know, not many of us are going to have nude photographs seen of us on, in a gallery wall. But, you know, it's an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity <laughs> to be seen. Thank goodness I, in my case. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, but, I, think, yeah. I, think, yeah, I think you're really on to something. And I really think you're on to something, a phenomenon that has a lot of momentum behind it. And it's really almost feels like acknowledgement to... We have to pause for a break, believe it or not, already. And um, But I love talking to you about the conversation around success and acknowledgement and um, what it is and what it all means. Um, we're going to take a break here, but we're going to come back and talk more with Barbara Lynn Probst, author of The Sound Between the Notes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. 
Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve riders who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Barbara Lynn Probst, author of The Sound Between the Notes. And we're introduced to the character Suzanne and her family. Susanna, uh, Susanna, Susanna has no shortage of troubles, Barbara. And when I, whenever I, um, you know, delve into a book that has lots and lots of suspense, these troubles just seem to mount and mount and mount. And yet the bubble that she's in, this beautiful suburban environment, somehow remains intact. And the question is always, is this bubble going to burst? Um, she has, now she is a pianist, as we talked about, uh, Susanna, and she develops the Dupuytren's contraction syndrome. This is a medical condition. Um, it's, it's so interesting that you brought this to light. It is, um, it, a family friend just um, had surgery for it. It's a common mm. ailment. Um, so, but it's another metaphor, right, Barbara? Like a contraction, mm. like a, a kind of um, paralysis. How did you come to, you know, land on Dupuytren's contraction? <laughs> well, it's actually very... I'm going to go back before I answer that. One of the sources of of this book was um, I had begun studying piano more more seriously. I got a much better teacher and so forth. And I was just really getting into it. And I remember this one day I was in the bathroom reaching for, I don't know, a toothbrush or hairbrush or something, reaching to the cabinet. And I felt that my my hand felt very tight. Something didn't feel right. And I remember thinking, oh, no, not now of all times. Now, I'm not a concert pianist and I don't have a disease, but I remember that feeling. And so then as I was working on the book, I wanted to find a connection between the element of her uh, being an adoptee and having a biological family, things coming to her through heredity, and then the other aspect of being a musician who has an unexpected uh, second chance to to vault into the into a higher tier of of uh, performance, so I had to find a hereditary disease that would be devastating for a pianist. So I did what we do. I just googled hereditary disease of the hand, and up up popped Dupuytren's contracture. So I began to learn about it, and this was really interesting. I found that there was a, or there is, a world-renowned concert pianist named Misha Dichter 
who had Dupuytrens yes. and um, has surgery and everything. Anyway, so I, I reached out to his agent, wrote an email, et cetera, et cetera, wondering if I could ask a few questions of Mr. Dichter, and I gave him my phone number. So then the next day, the phone rings. I pick it up, and it says, hello, this is Misha Dichter. <laughs> he was so gracious and generous, told me his whole story. So I was able to get a firsthand insight into some, uh, an actual pianist who had had this. Now, in, in Susanna's case, she's caught it much, much earlier, um, so she has to make some, some decisions about, and, and we don't know if she's overreacting, um, but she doesn't want to take any chances, and because her, her husband is a scientist, he thinks he knows best, and this is one of the sources of their, of their rift, that she's stepping outside the role by, by making, he's in charge of science, she's in charge of beauty, and so she's, She's, she's poaching on, on, on his, his turf. So one, what happens often in writing is one thing then begins to lead you into other connections and interweavings that actually enrich and, and thicken the fabric of the book. So that ended up being just the absolute perfect um, uh, physical threat because many things threaten her. When you have... Um, What's at stake is is this chance to be the self that she didn't get to be. Mm-hmm. Then the, the bigger the stakes, the bigger the threats have to be. Um, mm-hmm. But all of that really came together um, kind of magically for me, I have to say. Well, there is an alchemy, and I think you've you've touched on it. You went intuitively towards something. Well, first you did your research on Google, and that's the beginning of everything. But you know, you you followed your intu- intuition, and I think you um, you know gave the the character something that she would um, logically, realistically, be absolutely panic stricken about. Um, and then, of course, it does have a genetic element to it. Her, mm-hmm. her found sister you alluded to earlier, who, um, you know, is also a dichotomy because she is also a musician, but she's a country and Western singer. So there's that kind of like impresario, like that kind of snobbish, oh, my God, my sister is wearing fringe and she's on a stage and she's in a place where people only drink beer and you know but Susanna needs that right she needs to find that other self she needs to find that anchor um, that's gonna be just you know tether her to a reality that she hasn't really known Um, yeah 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 go ahead I'm sorry I was just going to say what the other the thing that plays into all this too is that one of we all have a certain um, myth that we tell ourselves, and I mean it can be called the wound or the the misbelief. Different writing gurus call it different things, but in Susanna's case, it's this whole thing about being chosen. So she feels as an adoptee that her that she was not chosen by her birth mother even though there's um, her adoptive mother tells this whole chosen baby story, and, and, um, which is that's a whole other, <laughs> whole other conversation, but, but the sense that we chose you, you know. But, mm-hmm. so, so this whole 
The sister represents someone who was chosen. Everybody wanted her. Why didn't she want me? And so she wants to be chosen as the soloist and all of these things. So the embracing of the sister is the um, rejection of the myth that you have to choose one or the other. You can have both families, your adoptive parents who raised you and you love, your birth parents who you didn't know but really meant the best for you, uh, both kinds of music. So this is like a, like a huge theme for her. I thank you very much for enlightening us on that because it is the it is the dissolution of the myth, and the dissolution of non of binary uh, worldviews. You know, it's either or. It's either success or family. It's either you know love or money or you know these things that drive us um, crazy, and things you know that like yeah you know chosen not chosen. No, maybe there's a whole nuance that we don't know anything about that really bears investigating. Um, I think the other thing that you really have talked about um, is the idea of performance and how Susanna, she kind of defines herself by this skill that she has, this extraordinary skill as a pianist. Um, and she feels that somehow this is why her husband loves her. I'm a little... I'm a little sketchy on that, but it rings so true to me that an adoptee might have a lacking sense of self-worth and that in order to be valued as a person, you have to, you have to perform. Like Greg Gaines, the, the, the Olympic diver from many years back, you know, he said that, like, I just had to perform mm. at such a level to accept myself as, as being worthy. Um, I drove myself to this to this incredible position. Um, you know, you name tons of adoptees that, you know, really are um, incredibly uh, performance driven. Stephen Jobs, you know, the list goes on. Um, but I did wonder, you know, it really seemed to me that Aaron, the husband, he had other dimensions, didn't he? And he was um, trying to express his love for her by giving her advice and mansplaining over mm-hmm. <laughs> her, her instinct. Is there a dichotomy there between her instinct and, and this sort of rational side that he represents? Yeah, it's interesting. He was the last character to really fall into place for me. There were some of them like Vera and Jimmy Ray and Beryl and Hollis that just appeared full-blown, easy. They just I just saw them. I just knew them. Aaron was the last one for me, and it was just what you're speaking about. I, I didn't feel what drove him. I didn't feel the part of him that I could, that I could, um, uh, the, the tender part that, I, that, would, that would touch me until I, I realized, and I put the, that insight into Susanna, of course, that he was trying in the best way he knew to express his love. It wasn't control. It was just trying to, here, let me, I know this stuff. Let me fix it. Let me do it. Let me solve, let me solve the problem. That was his way. And if she took that away from him, he was terrified that he was no longer needed. And that was really the last, the last bit that brought the book together for me was understanding what drove Aaron and that it's not as boring as, you know, science versus art or controlling husband versus wife who wants to be liberated. Everyone in the book 
is trying to do right as they understand it. And that, for me, was a very profound um, thing that the book taught me, that really there's no villains in there. And, and I think that's... The other thing I wanted to say, just to ping back to this performance notion that you raised, is that um, another insight that came to me late in the, in the revision process was that Susanna style of playing with solo. And there's a very famous um, female pianist, South America, named Martha Argerich. And at a certain point in her career, she refused to do solos. She only would do uh, ensemble because she said, it's too lonely on the stage by myself. And it just wasn't as interesting to play alone. So for Susanna to open up that she can perform, now she hasn't done it yet, but she opens the possibility of even playing with her sister, right, jamming with her sister, that, that to play with others is to make um, a common music that isn't just about me, but we can join. And, and that is, I think, something that is um, ahead for her. Yeah. So um, yeah. I just kind of wanted to add that as well. Yeah, beautiful. I think that it's symbolic because Susanna is somewhat isolated from the get-go. We don't meet a lot of her friends, if any. Mm-hmm. She's got she's got Vera because she's on this professional, she's on this, let's say, performance track. And I love this description of the solo pianist, right? On stage, there's acres of space around them. There's nothing there. They're mm-hmm. completely in the shaft of the light. There's nobody else around. And, you know, when I think about it in terms of maybe it's amplified by COVID, there's just something about that that is like, wow, I, I think I'd be scared. It's so stark. It's so, yes, not, not um, symphonic, not synchronistic with others. Um, and I love the idea that Susanna may have a future. We're certainly going to inquire about that. But um, the language of love that you mentioned from Aaron, I don't want to lose that point because he's mm-hmm. trying to help her fix the deeper twins sy- syndrome that she has. And that fixing, she resents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what you, you touched on, the revelation of the, realizing his tenderness in that. It really is so close to home, Barbara. It's something that all of us in marriages experience. Why is this person telling me this? Why are they trying to control my choices? Why are they trying to fix things all the time? I just want them to listen. Um, To me, it resonates so uh, intimately with daily life and just about every issue that comes up. And if we could take that pause and really stand back and say, wait a minute, where is this coming from? We might come back to a place of love much, much sooner. So then I have to come back to the question, is there a future for Susanna? What's percolating in your mind as an author for these characters? Oh, no, I didn't mean to imply that. No, I, I have the new book that, I'm, uh, that I've written. It's, when I say I've written... It takes me about a zillion revisions to get it to where I feel I'm going to give it out in the world. But I have a third book, and it's completely different characters, completely different everything. I don't ever write. I have no interest in writing a sequel. I like the feeling for the reader that the character will continue to have a life after the last page, that there's something a little bit 
open-ended. So we know that in the, in the end of this book, we don't know exactly what her father's situation is going to be. He's clearly got some early signs of dementia. We don't know how James is going to kind of emerge from the trauma that he had, although we, he's a pretty down-to-earth kid, and I, I feel certain he will. <laughs> we don't know... Um, what relationship Susanna will have with her long-lost um, sister. We don't know whether the Dupatrins will come back. We don't know all of these things. And I kind of like that in, in, in a book because I don't know if you're like this, Diane, but I finish a really wonderful book. I'm so sad to, to think that the characters are <laughs> no longer with me. So if, if I can imagine them living on, it's sort of nice. It's very and plus, nice. there's no tidy. You, you, don't, you don't want to tie everything up to to um, in, in in a kind of too patly, you know. Yeah, nice into bows. Well, life isn't like that. But I think more essentially is what you're saying. Like you know, when the movie ends, or the book ends. And any anything that you get emotionally involved in, like you do with these characters, that they have a life that continues beyond you. You've just gotten mm-hmm. a glimpse. You've gotten, we've dropped in, we've seen a glimpse of these characters. James is the correct name for the, for the son. Um, and that we see them, and then when the story ends, they go on. And I do think you've, you're, you've tapped into something that is really essential about reading, that um, these are real characters. They exist without us. <laughs> They're going to exist <laughs> right. after we close oh, the book. Feel, yeah. No, no, I always feel that also that it's like, like uh, sometimes you think of your character wanting to like shake you and say, you're not getting me right. Why aren't you paying? Why aren't you listening to what I want you to do? <laughs> you know, like you have to really, you're at the service of your characters and, and get to know them more deeply. I think there's all kinds of wonderful exercises for that. But, but there is a point in writing a book for each character except some of the minor ones that, that again, as I said, they, they seem to come to me pretty fully formed. But with the main characters, there's always a point when I, as an author, have a breakthrough and I suddenly know my character better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of love that. Yeah. Um, you do carry these characters along in your mind's, uh, mind's eye as you're living day to day, making the coffee, taking the kids somewhere, you know, meeting your husband, you know, your, your children may be older now, but, you know, you, while you're carrying out all of our, you know, daily routines, you've got a story in your mind. I, I'm very happy to hear there's a third book. Um, I think you're creating a real fan base here. I know. Um, she Writes Press has published these two books. They're both beautiful. And I want to talk to you some more about how these stories um, continue with us. Yes, definitely that. Um, but also the role of uh, perfectionism, um, the role of being satisfied, accepting ourselves in life, how that becomes easier or harder depending, and um, what these characters might have to teach us. It's really uh, a thrill to go on this ride with you, Barbara Lynn Probst, and uh, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we'll continue the conversation here on Dropping In.
Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with the amazing author, Barbara Lynn Probst. She's written the book, The Silence Between the Notes, as in music, as in Mozart. As in, maybe, Barbara, the resounding silence of a mother that you never knew, a story that wasn't filled in, but also the idea of music happening in a kind of an amalgam, as in a kind of alchemy between the music and the listener. And as you said, you know, here's Susanna She doesn't want to hold back anymore. She wants to be heard. She wants to be heard on the large stage, in the big scale, in the big time. And she's going to go for it. That's such a quandary for women sometimes. And I think there was a real sense of that in the book. What are your views on this kind of quandary and us holding ourselves back? Well, you know, there's two two parts to what I want to say, I think. Um, uh, first, I just the sound between the notes is an interesting um, concept. Mozart said that the music is not in the notes, but in the space between them. And um, Maya Angelou talked about crawling into the silence between the notes. And this idea that there is something, the sound, there's something between the obvious points in our lives, let's say. There's, there's something else. You slow down, you go deeper, um, quieter, um, however you want to put it. You can hear the other things that may have, that, that you might not have heard. So there's, I, there's something kind of wonderful um, to me about that for sure. Now I'm going to. Rep- I've already just lost my other thread of what I was going to say to your to your question about about um, going about going public. Was that kind of like yeah. giving yourself well, to the world, right? Yeah. Well, um, we can also follow what you just said because I also think that that's brilliant, um, and there's a lot to it. Um, I just. I came across something, um, the author, um, P.L., get the initials wrong, Travers, who wrote the Mary Poppins series, 
she talks about um, just going into nothingness. Um, like really, that's where you find things. So that kind of re- recalls like meditation. It recalls like going into silence where you really find um, the treasures, really find um, the things that are going to spark sparkle, sparkle in your life. And, you know, here's, she creates Mary Poppins, who's, you know, into the occult, she's into, you know, and, but in any case, she's not going to be repressed. She is an irrepressible character. And Susanna, in the same way, has this kind of heartbeat. She wants to live large. She wants to live larger. She doesn't know if that's going to mean losing everything and everyone she holds dear. I think now we're back on the Yeah, this is very, it's also very interesting to bring this now to, I think, what you were originally asking me about a a creative life, in this case, as a writer. Um, There are people who say that it's, you write for yourself, um, it doesn't matter if anybody ever reads it or likes it or reviews it or buys it or whatever, whatever, you're really doing it for yourself. And that's a point of view. There's, then, of course, you know, the tree that falls in the forest is and nobody hears it. But I think that there is something about giving your sound or your words or your vision, putting it out in public into the world that changes it and changes you. Because if you keep your manuscript in your desk drawer, well, you're very safe and... Um, it's fine, um, but there's a risk putting it out, and you have to have a lot of drive and determination, perseverance, um, a strong ego in a way, a strong sense of self um, to, to, go, to do that. But it's also, it's not just ego. There's also a kind of wish to connect, to give something, to contribute um, right. And, you know, when I get a, a, an email from somebody saying, oh, I loved your book, it meant so much to me, it helped me with this, that, or the other, it really makes it all worthwhile. And I will tell you a story here that's about Queen of the Owls, actually. It's, it's under the category of You Never Know that uh, there's scenes in that book where she's examining, um, she's, she takes her blouse off and she's looking at herself in the mirror and all of that. So I had a woman write to me and say that, she was always very uncomfortable with the idea of anything to do with, like, women's breasts. But she knew she was supposed to do self-exam, and she never did it. And reading my book made her do the breast self-exam, and she mm-hmm. found a lump. Mm-hmm. Got treatment, mm-hmm. is alive. So mm-hmm. I just say that when you give your book into the world, you never know. And so there's something about this sort of generosity, which for a performer like Susanna or as, an, as a writer to publish, I think it's really important. Absolutely. I think that's such a stirring, profound story and, and comment um, from you. You've also, you know, in addition to connecting very personally with people through your book, through your writing, I think it is a non-ego sense. You you talk about it as an offering in your acknowledgments. It's an it's something you offer, and mm-hmm. that's very different than saying, "Here I am. Here's what I'm saying." You know, it's 
It's very different. It's you, Barbara. You you have um, you have gotten a lot of accolades for this book, "The Silence Between the Notes." You've got a Caracas Star review. You've gotten a lot of praise and not- notoriety for it. But I also think that you have offered something of yourself that's almost selfless. It's almost that risk-taking of turning yourself inside out. Well, it's just an endless dilemma because this promotion requires, look at me, look at me. It just, and and I struggle with this every day. It's, um, It's really hard, and in fact, just speaking totally candidly, having launched two books within... 364 days because they were they were a day apart and and um and then just nonstop you know of all of this I really um this is my last event for the summer I'm really I really need to replenish inside so it's it's a real it's a real um struggle it's just the, the and I I don't know how others you know deal with it but it's um it's it's a it's a really um, I don't know maybe I should think of it more as a dance rather than a struggle maybe that would be <laughs> that would help. <laughs> you're very authentic, you know. So it's not like you're just saying lightly. Uh, okay, well, um, I learned writing in sixth grade, and now here I am. No, you're telling a different story. You're telling a much more internal story, a much more um, personal story much more complicated story, a more complex um, interweaving of our own personal struggles and how we deal with them. And it is a lot of exposure. I don't get that we're endlessly extroverts either. Mm-mm, Writers mm-mm. need to recharge, right? And, and how, <laughs> yeah. how will you go about that this summer? How will you spend some time and how will you recharge? Um. Well, I, uh, I I live on a, in a very secluded area, which is really nice. So I do a lot of walking, and be still be swimming, and there'll be there'll be gardening and all of and all of that stuff. Um, some travel, um, in uh, in all of that. Um, there was some. Oh my gosh, my other thought just flew right out the window. Um, but I must but thank you very that's much all right. <laughs> for our last. I'm, I'm so glad that you've made time for us as your last promotion. I, I'm sure promotion is an agony, but I've certainly enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, the other thing I would just add to that, this is not, but is that in, in publishing really two books during a pandemic, you know, at first there's this, there was this, um, oh my gosh, how can I, sort of self-promote when, when people, when there's so much um, terrible, so many terrible things happening in the world, people, people dying. And of course, this is the whole time of, um, well, so many things were going on. Anyway, let's put it this way. And, and you really kind of accept that people have always turned to stories as a way to heal and be inspired and find new insight and common ground. I mean, stories have always done that for us. So, um, I think that for me, it's about holding that duality. Just we talked earlier about non-binary thinking. That yes, I want my book to sell. I want people to buy it. I want people to re- review it because that's yeah. But but it also could maybe be um, helpful. So it's okay to say 
I'd like you to buy my book. It's okay. I don't have to apologize because the book might actually um, be meaningful to people. So I think maybe that's, for me, a kind of a journey of acceptance as a writer. And I will finally, my last, I think we're probably out of time, is for the third book, the very magical thing about this one for me is that my character taught me something that I didn't know when I started the book. So there's that, too, where, um, where we benefit as human beings from our own stories, which is kind of the new dimension opening for me. Mm-hmm. You're pulling threads out of yourself. You know, you're pulling yeah. something. Yeah. It's so cool. You're yeah. helping yourself and in the process... Helping others who, you know, sometimes these journeys are so, so far undocumented. You're documenting a different journey. Yeah. Oh, I think I know what I was going to say before is that when you write a novel, you know, people have always asked, well, are you really Elizabeth or are you really Suzanne? You know, you draw on your own experience for sure. There, emotionally, there are many things in books, these books that are directly from my own lived experience, but they are re-embodied in fictitious situations, fictitious characters. So I don't have to have Pose nude to be able to write about the feeling of being exposed uh, beyond my comfort level, for example. And oh, in, in The Sound Between the Notes, how, when, when her birth father rejects her in such a devastating way, you know, I, I didn't have a birth father. I had my father... You know, um, never did that to me, but but I know what it feels like to be mm-hmm. utterly rejected. We all do. So you you take your characters are you, but they're you in a, in a new body. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, you you um, have captured it. I can tell you that the dialogue is rings true. It's authentic, and um, for those of us who are adopted and have reconnected. Um, with biological family, it all rang true. There were no false notes in mm, the silence between you. the notes. So, no, I have to say, Diane, sorry, the sound between the notes. The sound between the notes. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I went into yeah. you know another you know, sort of you know the the word eluded me. The so- the sound between the notes. It's been a pleasure, deep pleasure, speaking with you today, Barbara Lynn Probst. And we are out of time, but <laughs> I want to thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me, Diane. It was a totally, totally enjoyable hour. It flew past. Great. I'm glad. And enjoy your recharge. Thank you so much to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Giolino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and that sometimes to get ahead, you have to step out of line. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.